you're listening to Reba Radio, the podcast. From 18th to the 26th of November 2021, our annual inclusion festival took the form of a dedicated radio station broadcast live from the bookshop at the Reba's HQ in London, with me, Marsha Ramroop, the Director of Inclusion at the RIBA, hosting the discussions. Reba Radio, the podcast, is the speech-only content from that radio station, themed and edited for your easy consumption. We suggest you make your way systematically through all episodes from the intro to the end to help you effectively on your inclusion journey. We hope you enjoy it and find it useful and applicable. Broadcasting your inclusion journey online, 18th to the 26th of November. You're listening to Reba Radio. You are listening to Reba Radio, broadcasting live from the bookshop at 66 Portland Place, the HQ of the Royal Institute of British Architects with Reba Radio. We've been bringing you 28 hours of material to help you build inclusion into everything you do. And it's all rooted in that foundational behavioural principle of CQ, cultural intelligence. Cultural intelligence, the capability to work and relate effectively with people who are different from you. And in this final hour of Reba Radio, we're clearing the decks and simply reviewing what we've been talking about so far and talking about the actions that we can take to move us all forward. To do that, we have a stellar group of people uh, with the responsibility to guide and lead on these matters for the architecture sector. We have Alan Valance, the CEO of the RIBA, Jack Pringle, the chair of the board of the RIBA, Rebecca Roberts-Hughes, director of Policy and Communications at the ARB, Sarah Akinbogan, Architect and Founding Studio Director of Studio Aki and Vice Chair of Women in Architecture and Founder of XXA AOC Project and Council Member for the RIBA and me, Marsha Ramroop, I'm beholding myself accountable to as Director of Inclusion at the RIBA. So let's get straight into it. Um, and we've been covering these four capabilities of CQ across the, the last uh, seven days. I'm sure you guys have been tuned to the radio absolutely 100%. Um, and uh, on that first day, we looked at an overview. What is cultural intelligence? Looking at unconscious bias. We also looked at the inclusion charter of the RIBA. And we talked about the context of inclusion in architecture. On the second day, we looked at CQ Drive. You know, how do people get motivated to work and relate with those who are different from them? We talked about some really sticky subjects like white shame. And we talked about um, discomfort and fear and working through all of that. We also talked about the data piece and how that can motivate people to move forward. So we'll, we'll uh, dig into that a little bit as well. Um, uh, but also we talked about some of those lived experiences in CQ knowledge. So the lived experiences of women, uh, those of underrepresented racialized groups, LGBTQ plus lives, disability, socioeconomic diversity, and then some of those strategies around inclusive recruitment, inclusive design as well. So I'm going to play you a few clips of some of the things that, that have been talked about and we'll, we'll talk about them. 
So if we can start by uh, listening to David Livermore. Now, David Livermore is the president of the CQ Centre and he um, had a very particular view on what motivated people to actually be more inclusive and to take inclusive action. In some ways, I would say in a work setting, it might be best if it starts by talking about a very work performance oriented outcome. So I might be more motivated to understand your background if you help me see how knowing that is going to help me get a better outcome over here. You know, what does it have to do with architecture? You know, like, like I, I'm a good person and I don't want to be racist. And I want to understand that, but why am I talking about this at work? So I would say what it looks like in part is getting people very focused on an objective that that team cares about. And then along the way, hopefully we start to also discover like, whoa, you have some great insights that I would love for my kids to learn about or that I could really incorporate into the way that I engage in my community or my faith expression or whatever else it might be. So, so for me, I would say you start with what we measure as the extrinsic interest, what's in it for me to actually do this related to a work-oriented outcome. Because I think too many of our EDI efforts have for too long just used EDI is an end in and of itself and wondered why people are like, we're just doing this to be politically correct instead of saying, well, there are good reasons just to do it, but it will also have good outcomes for us as a team. So coming first to uh, Rebecca Roberts, Hughes, Director of Policy and Communications at the ARB, um, David Livermore there suggesting that the motivation may be the bottom line and that's what's going to get people involved in EDI efforts, equi equity, diversity and inclusion efforts in architecture. How much do you agree that that's the motivation for people in architecture? Yeah, that was that was really interesting to hear. Thanks for playing it, Marsha. Um, so ARB obviously sets the standards that architects need in order to become architects. We recognise the qualifications that people have to have for them to be able to join the register and design buildings. So it's really important to think about this in a professional context. And part of what we're trying to do at the moment is think about our role the powers that the government has given us that are there in legislation and the standards that we set as part of the code of conduct and as part of the way that we recognise qualifications and how we can build ethical behaviour into those things so that it's part of the profession through and through. And so I'm really interested to hear David talk about the professional context and why people might be motivated because it's relevant to their careers and their professionalism because that's something we're really interested in as well. Alan, if I, I can ask you to um, to respond to that as well. I mean, uh, there is that bottom line piece, but surely it's about people. It's, it's just a good thing to do, isn't it, to try to be inclusive? Yeah, very definitely. Hi, Marsha. Welcome. <laughs> I'm, I haven't seen you for a week. You've been so busy doing this radio show, but well done. Uh, the, I've listened to a bit of it. Um, not as much as I was like, but I've been um, pretty busy with the RIPA. Um, and I'll be listening on playback. I, I think... Um, I mean, it is the. You know, I'll sort of relate to my own experience as a professional over the years, and you know that sort of rise of ethical behaviour, the rise of sort of inclusivity, EDI. Um, you know where we've come over the last ten, twenty, even thirty years or so has been pretty phenomenal, actually. But it's it's a sort of start of a very long journey, um, and I think we've got a very long way to go still. Um, I think at the heart of it all, you know, it. it I've, I've had experience in coaching um, and tapping into people's motivations and passion is always something that will deliver a better result. So, you know, understanding people, 
understanding what drives them, understanding how you relate to other people. All those things are really, really critical and that, you know, professions generally have been very focused on the professional qualification, the technical skills development, but actually it's about people relating to people and, you know, the RIBA is a society, you know, it's about societal relationships, so that whole sort of interconnection between people, the society within which you operate, whether it's the RIBA and, you know, what we do every day in our business environment or more generally outside of the organisation as people, I think is really important. Uh, and I, I mean, obviously, I would agree with that 100%. I just feel that the um, intrinsic motivators and, and people being driven by something in in them themselves is far more sustainable than a, a bottom line um, uh, outfit. And, and I see you, you, you nodding there, Sarah. Um, uh, thank you very much indeed for, for joining us on, on this. Tell, yeah, tell me your views on, on the bottom line approach being uh, the driver for the architect, uh, architecture sector. Um, firstly, I'd like to say thank you very much for having me. Um, uh, it's a privilege to be part of this discussion. Um, and uh, yeah, you, you caught me nodding there because I, I think I would like to think that um, motivation would be um, would come from something um, greater than the bottom line, greater than commercial value. Um, of course, we know that there is a business case for inclusion, but I think that there's also a huge social case. Um, I believe that we as architects are custodians, they're custodians of the built environment. Um, that is fundamental to what we do. And I'd like to think that that would be a motivating um, factor for architects. Um, if I can talk about my kind of personal motivations, I know that everyone, um, not everyone is necessarily motivated by social factors, but um, Marsha, I know you have, you, you love a quote. And so I have one for you. Um, it comes from James Baldwin's The Fire Next Time. And it's a letter that he wrote to his nephew. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll just read it. So he says, my, my dear namesake, these innocent and well-meaning people, your countrymen, have caused you to be born under conditions not very far removed from those described by Charles Dickens in the London of more than 100 years ago. Um, and another quote, if I may, which speaks to that. Planners should be advocates for the poor and underprivileged, advancing their interests in the same way a lawyer represents clients. Uh, that's a quote from David Davidoff, who was um, a theorist in the America of the 1960s. Um, and uh, I would replace planners with architects. Um, and I think that in order to be effective custodians, uh, we need to speak with a myriad of voices. The profession obviously needs to be inclusive. And I would like to think that that, um, that, that social factors like that would be uh, very strong motivating uh, factors for people. Jack, um, chair of the Jack Pringle, chair of the board of the RIBA. I mean, listening to Sarah there, and and, and you're being a practicing architect yourself. Um, it, what do you what do you make of what Sarah's got to say about you know those motivations to to move the the profession forward, being greater than just looking at the bottom line outcomes of having a more diverse and inclusive uh, profession. Well, well, I agree with that. Before I get to that, uh, nice to see you again, Marsha, from uh, last night at that terrific celebration for our new president's first 100 days. 
Uh, I, I hope your head is a little bit better than mine because I slightly slow. I was hardly drinking at all. I knew I'd be on air today. <laughs> I should have. I should have taken that tip. No, I I agree with Sarah. I, I think there are three motivations uh, for you know diversity underpinning and being part of our practices. Um, one is just plain fairness, you know, and I and I think actually Brits have a deep seated sort of sense of fairness. You know, it's just not cricket, people might say. And so, you, you know, I think the fairness uh, agenda sh should be in every right-minded person's uh, mind. Um, the, the second, um, and I'll come to performance last, the second is we're architects. We design the future. And the future is for everybody, uh, regardless of their background, regardless of their gender or, or, or race. And so it's really important that the people that design the future for everybody uh, are populated by everybody. So I think it, it's, you know, in terms of the quality of our product and, and getting the future right, uh, we need to have your representation of everybody inside our, uh, inside our design teams. But I would come to David, uh, David's uh, Livermore's uh, uh, performance point last. I've run practices uh, large and small. I, I'm actually a, a new startup. I'm doing a very small practice now, but I have run large practices. And I've always thought that our performance, our success has, has been vastly increased uh, when we had a, a diverse set of architects who, are, who were, if you like, pitching to clients because we want the architects that are pitching to clients to reflect the client body themselves. Um, and and that, that leads to success. And, and also, we just get better work out of it. And, you know, I know there are statistics saying about, I can't remember what the, the uplift in profit is if you have a, a diverse uh, uh, staff complement, but it's my experience that it's true. So I go for all three, plain fairness, designing the future so you need everybody on board, and actually it does help the bottom line. Yeah, a mixture of both those intrinsic and extrinsic uh, uh, motivators. So one of the main things really about all of this is that we have to measure. We have to measure how we're moving. If we, we don't know what to tackle unless we can see it. And uh, we spoke to um, Emma Weber of Lever Learning, who's been tracking change around the way that we've been implementing CQ here at the RIBA. And, and here's what she had to say. So I think with an individual there's the data part as we said where it can actually help motivate people and give them the insights there's also the benefit that you're actually then sort of tracking your own changes with your own data as you as you go through and kind of making your stories and truth behind that data of what's actually happening for you so there's a way that we can impair our own individual journeys with that data i think it then becomes possibly more so or definitely equally as important for the organisation and with the organisation to actually be able to identify if the dial is changing on things that they are looking to change and also identify areas where it's not changing and therefore what else can they do to support or create that change. So if I can come to you, Alan, about, well, first of all, talking about how we've implemented CQ and, and that um, transfer of action into learning, um, coaching that we've been giving all staff as well. I mean, how effective, just be honest, give, give me live PDR feedback <laughs> <laughs> on, on how that's actually been working out as far as you're concerned. Well, it's, um, 
so we get, well, we've been going for quite a few months now, but we, we, we made a big commitment. Um, you know, we're supporting the CQ framework. You're leading on that. We, we ourselves as the executive team put ourselves through the process first. So we, we had, uh, you know, sort of an eight hour session over two days with you. We got into some really, really detailed and really fruitful conversations. We've had sort of coaching follow-ups and then that's been cascading down, not just through through the staff structure, but also in the um, the elected member ranks, the non-executive streams as well. So the whole organisation, the entire organisation has made a commitment to sort of follow this through. So the the sort of size and shape of that has been quite quite incredible. We you know we're we're a relatively short time into that process now, and we're all still absorbing you know the experience and the learnings. I mean it's a great it's a toolkit. It's a framework for understanding how relationships between individuals work. You know societal relationships, and the RIBA itself was founded was it 1834 187 years ago as a learned society, but learned about probably things architecture, not necessarily people related. So I think it, that start of that journey has been very good. I think we're you know we're all still on on that journey, and as I say, we will be for some time. Um, the toolkit itself is it's it does it's not a prescriptive do this in this situation, and that's what it what it needs to be. So it's a, it's something that provides people with comfort and reassurance when they don't quite know how to deal with these confronting situations, and we've had that over the last year or two, you know, the Black Lives Matter issues, how do we, the RIBA, how do I, as the chief executive, deal with all of that has been quite confronting. So having a toolkit, a framework, a, a place in which you can have a safe conversation, I think has been really useful. And I know the team have sort of fed that back to me as well. I'm, I was going to make a point on data, but um, I, I think that sort of data grab was really, really important because, um, the you know, the, the, the collection of data... Uh, having that information provides another safe way of having that conversation. But I think also it's, you know, there's an old, old saying about um, I've got a dam full of, of data when all I wanted was a swimming pool of insight. So it's about collecting the right sort of information to deliver the right insight as well. And that has proven to be really, really tough, both within our organisation, but also across the profession. You know, what sort of data should we be collecting? How do we do it in a safe way? How do we reassure people it's safe to provide that data because that will provide us with insight for more evidence-based decisions and I think there's a we've got to do quite a, a lot more to get that flowing. Yeah, and, and uh, Re Rebecca, you know, you and I have spoken about this actually because I think is it about um, uh, sixty-nine percent of uh, registered architects uh, on the ARB website they, that who declare their demographic data. It needs to be more than that, not just for for, for you, but for, for us at the RIBA and for the sector mm -hmm. as well. I mean, what what are you hoping can change so that we can be better at collecting the right kind of data? Yep, um, really true, Marsha. The stats have gone up since we last spoke, so I think it's around 72% now. Um, so thanks for supporting us in that. We've been promoting the importance of filling out this, this information anonymously to architects, but we're going to be using that next year. So um, we've just brought in a new policy officer to lead on equality, diversity and inclusion in ARB. Um, and, and what Esther's going to be doing is partly looking internally about what we need to do as, as an organisation, which is why I'm so interested in CQ and what you've been doing here at REBA. But obviously with our staff, 
statutory role, there's a lot we can do for the profession as well. So we're going to do a report next year, which looks at the register. We know right now what those 72% of architects have told us um, at an overall level, but we want to break the data down and look at what's happening every year, because I believe a couple of years ago, we achieved gender parity on, on incoming architects joining the register for the first time. But there's a lot more that we want to look at. We want to look at intersectionality. We want to look at what you and others have on um, who's qualifying and who's dropping out of the, the educational process, which we're reviewing at the moment. So, so yeah, it's, it's absolutely important. And it gives us a, a sort of state of the nation of architects, what the profession looks like. And the points that Jack and Sarah have made about working in the built environment, building a future for everybody, being custodians of the built environment. We want a profession that reflects society and that can build for all of the different sorts of communities and understanding who architects are in the register and how they get onto it is really important to that. How do you decide, though, what data to collect? Because, I mean, this is something I'm grappling with. Um, I've, I, I, I don't know if you spotted it, but um, all, everyone who was involved in um, Reba Radio will send a, a link to fill out their, their demographic data. There was a, a list of about 18 questions and it included things like caring responsibilities and uh, what your parents were doing when you were age 14, as well as, you know, those um, traditional, if you like, uh, protected characteristics around disability, age, uh, ethnicity, etc. Um, but, you know, when, when you have a that the intersectional piece, but also, you know, uh, if you're collecting something different from us to uh, the actual um, professions collecting, how do we make sure that there's a joined up approach as well? Well, I'm looking forward to working with you on it um, and loads of other organisations as well. So, Marsha, you and I spoke at um, a, a research symposium for FAME, female architects of minority ethnic backgrounds, and I've been talking to them about what data they would be interested in. Some of it we already have, but we haven't analysed it and published it in the level of detail that people would find useful. Some of it we don't. And if we were to start collecting it, we'd have to publicly consult on, on how we go about doing that. So if we're to change what we ask schools to give us as part of our recognition, our, our prescription, process we're going to have to consult on that and change it so we want to co-create the data that we have we want to talk to people work with you work with other organizations to make sure we're collecting the right information Sarah, um, you know, as a council member of the RIBA, somewhat um, represented, uh, re representing that but um, there is an issue of trust, isn't there, when it comes to gathering data uh, from especially underrepresented groups that are fear that it might be used in, in, in a way that is detrimental. Uh, how do you think that we can build that trust so that we can effectively collect data from across, um, across practice? Um, th thanks, Marcia. That's uh, that's uh, an interesting question. Um, if if I can just um, circle back slightly b before answering that, but just to um, just to kind of reinforce um, the importance of data. Um, one of the things that I've been looking at slightly outside the RIBA with with the XXAOC is is the history of um, female architects of colour, and one of the huge issues there is actually the absence of data. Um, so if, if the, the absence of historical data, and um, I think that speaks to the future as, as well, because the, the lack of this data means that we don't have a kind of complete historical picture. We don't have the stories that we um, necessarily need to, um, to, to, to inspire people um, to become part of the profession, to, um, you, you know, we don't have 
the stories that we need um, for education. So it's, it's just to, to make the point that it, it's really important that we collect data because um, that becomes part of the kind of future narrative. Now, I know that's slightly outside what we're, we're talking about now. Um, in terms of trust, I think that this is a, um, th this is a, a difficult one because obviously, uh, for example, if you look at something like the, the recent race report, which I, which I won't go into in detail, but I think that that is an example of um, a kind of mismanagement and, and distortion of data. Um, I, I think that people have to um, be very clear about the motives behind collecting data and also to be reassured that the right data is being collected. Um, I think that also having, you know, people from the, from, from the backgrounds that we're talking about um, as part of that process is really important in, in terms of trust. Um, and I think that, um, you know, beyond the data, it's, it's about the, the stories that we, um, that we extract from that. I think that that's, that's actually, you know, more kind of almost more important than the raw data itself. Hmm. Um, Jack, I mean, do you think there's the in, uh, enough understanding in the sector, in the in the profession, that this is an important thing to do and to gather and to identify those gaps? I think we're getting there. I'm not sure we're quite there right across the uh, the profession. Uh, for my money, it's one of the uh, the top three subjects that we have to tackle uh, diversity along with uh, competence and climate change. But I think we are getting there. I think data is really important because unless you're collecting data, you don't know objectively uh, what's going on, whether you're making a difference, you know, where the problems are. I think data more broadly uh, in the architectural profession is going to be extremely important because the profession that masters data capture first is going to, you know, be, be highly prized in the construction industry. And I would like that profession to be uh, the, the, the architectural profession. To that end, uh, we've gone out for to recruit a new subject matter expert trustee to join the trustee board. And we want somebody who has real deep expertise uh, in data. And I think we've found the right person. And uh, I can't say who they are at the moment, but, but if we do take this person on board, they particularly have experience in building quite large, diverse teams, deliberately diverse teams, in quite challenging circumstances. And I think uh, that person, uh, it would be very interesting for you, Marsha, to speak with that person because they understand, you know, how to harvest the right data um, and probably some of the, the sensitive issues that are embedded in it. So uh, I think it's very important. I, th I don't think the profession's quite there yet, but I think we are getting there. Well, certainly, um, when I'm thinking about, you know, and I've said publicly about the kind of priorities for next year, data is definitely, you know, so high up on, on that priority list because it's so important to identify where we are so that we can know where we're going to go. 
Uh, moving on now, is there's so much that we covered in in the 28 hours of of um, of, of broadcasting. Uh, a really important subject, a sticky one: uh, decolonization. Uh, we spoke to Angela Saini, who wrote the book uh, uh, Superior: The Return of Race Science. We also spoke to Dr. Neil uh, Chassor, who's who's writing a book for Reba Books um, about the the history of 66 Portland Place and and uh, the issues of decolonization. And he's he alongside um, d- uh, Professor Corinne Fowler, who did the work around national trust properties, uh, which was talking yesterday about, you know, how uh, decolonization needs to happen within architecture. But let's have a little listen to what An- Angela Saini had to say about what, uh, what decolonization is and, and what it means. I've worked with a few museums over the last year or two on this topic and I've seen firsthand how difficult it is within institutions to confront this because they are they serve so many different masters not just the public who are demanding this there's also a section of the public that are demanding that we don't do anything there's also the staff who very often demand that we do do something so you have all these different voices who want a stake in this narrative what does it mean to be british you know what what does the history of britain mean and how are we going to tell that story that is a fundamental question a fundamental question jack i mean is it something that the architecture uh, profession is is ready for to have this discussion around different perspectives on history and architecture well i think we have to be ready for it like it or not uh, because it's it's clearly you know, a very raw subject. There are very raw emotions um, that are sparked by it. And we've, we've seen that only too clearly over the last couple of years. Uh, I think it, it, it is coming into the architectural profession's lens. Um, I mean, I sort of reflect sometimes, you know, how interesting that it is still so raw, you know, uh, you know given that uh, Empire finished, you know, over 100 years ago, I suppose. Um, but nevertheless, it is. It is raw. It's a raw matter. And of course, we're, we're about to, uh, you know, in our home, uh, 66 Portland Place, embark on a renovation uh, to bring it up to 21st century standards, to make it accessible, etc. And one of the, the topics that we're going to have to confront there is decolonization, having a very good look at the building and, and to see, you know, what we need to do about it. And I think we need to take good advice. You mentioned Neil. And I think he's going to be, you know, very helpful to us in looking at 66. And frankly, I think I'm going to learn quite a lot about the subject because it's not something that I've had to deal with myself in the past. So I'm, I'm on a learning journey on this one. Sarah, in your experience, do you, have you experienced the, the sector, the, the profession being ready for this conversation? Um, so I, I should say so. Um... I'm obviously a practitioner. I'm also involved in education. Um, I teach design studio once a week. Um, and uh, I I have to say, I think this will be a challenge, a huge challenge for the profession, um, but also for education. I think um, that this is where it starts. It starts in pedagogy. Um, you know, uh, architecture itself as, as a discipline is, um, kind of firmly embedded in a, um, you know, in, in, in a white male narrative. It, it's been said multiple times over um, the, the last week or so. Actually, I don't mean a white male narrative, but what I mean is that it has its, it has its roots in, um, 
in, in classicism uh, and then later, you know, modernism. So we still learn about Corbusier, um, maybe not so much about Vitruvius, but the, but the fact is that um, this is where the discipline, not the creation of buildings, not the creation of um, the spaces that we live in, but the discipline of architecture comes from. Um, and so I think that that's really difficult because the way architecture is taught is still very much um, embedded in, uh, that this thinking is still very much embedded within it um but but what i'm encouraged by particularly over the last year or so is um i think there is a, a growing willingness to have the conversation um and I, I think that you know this this thing of decolonizing i think it should be and can be seen as a as as a huge positive any any profession anything that wants to um let's say remain relevant to future generations needs to evolve and for architecture particularly here in the UK um, you know a, a country that has this this legacy of of empire and colonization which means that um, we are a diverse country um, you know there there are lots of narratives to draw on that it, it should be seen as a uh, as an incredibly positive thing um, you know so we, we obviously value other cultures. We have the Benin bronzes in the British Museum, for example, but but um, the cultures that go along with these artifacts have not become part of architectural education. And and, and that needs to change the, the um, you know, the way we teach architecture, the way we talk about architecture needs to change. But I think that should be and can be seen as a positive. That's a good segue to talk to uh, Rebecca about uh, architecture education and um, how uh, you perceive the future of it, especially when we're, we're considering these sticky subjects like, uh, you know, decolonisation and uh, what that means for the curriculum, what we're actually teaching um, our young people. I mean, what, what's the ARB's view on, on how that should look in the future? Yeah, so we've um, launched a review into education. So in our role in recognising the qualifications that architects need, um, we're looking at how we do that and the regulatory structure for that. And we've asked some questions such as, is the parts one, two and three structure still appropriate? Or is it stopping certain people from getting onto the register? Thinking about everything we've just talked about um, and, and data as well, the register right now is 1% um, black and 29% female. So it doesn't reflect society right now. And what we've heard from architects is that the amount of money they have to spend training and going through their educational system can be a barrier. Um, we've heard that people have to have contacts in order to be able to get their professional experience. Their, their, um, yeah, part, part of their training relies upon them knowing somebody and being able to get a job in the sector. Uh, whereas other professions that might be part of the course and the university might help do it. So these are really important questions that we're asking. And as part of this review, we're going to take an outcomes based approach to education. So rather than looking at the inputs and what people need to be taught, we want to look at what they need to be at the end, the skills, experience, knowledge and behaviour that architects need to have in order to be able to practice as architects. We've got an event on the 9th of, of December, I believe, in which we're going to go into a lot more detail on this. And Dr. Neil Chassor, I think I've just seen in my inbox, has agreed to speak at it. So we're um, obviously great minds are thinking alike here, Marsha. Um, but we're going to be talking about uh, if we were to set an outcome around professionalism and ethical behaviour, what should form part of that? What should architects be taught? And I think some of the questions we've just been talking about are going to be really relevant. Um, what, what do universities 
universities, how, how do universities train architects? What sort of questions do they need to be able to ask? How do they need to be able to work with different people, communities? Um, this is all really relevant to what we're looking at at the moment. And when you're talking about those outcomes, I mean, one of the other things that we were talking about yesterday was about international architects and the way that they're perceived as well. Um, is that uh, something that the ARB is looking at, you know, validating and that, that process being different at all? Well, we do know, we have heard from people that the prescribed exam that we set, so international architects who'd like to join the UK register have to have a certain amount of um, training that, that's equivalent to parts one and two, um, and then they, they can sit an exam to join that, that we set. And we are looking at how that works and whether it's fair and whether it will... Um, again, we don't want to prohibit people with the right sorts of skills and experience coming onto the register. And if the way that we assess and examine things are doing that right now, we should change our processes. So that is something we're looking at. Um, Alan, as, as part of um, Simon Orford's 100 Days, you know, he talks about this house of architecture, about 66 Portland Place. Um, and the work that Neil's doing around decolonisation is really uh, about describing this building, which is mm. quite rooted in in those ideas of empire and uh, some of the, the, the elements of the way the building's constructed is, is can be quite seen as quite problematic. I mean, how do you view that as, as chief executive of this building and, and custodian, if, if you like, of it? It's a very good question. So last year, we actually had Neil um, present um, to us. He gave us a presentation. So in advice, he gave us a sneak peek of the content of the book. So uh, it was really, really interesting. And, the, and I was reflecting on the grab that you played just before and... Um, the comment around the fact that normally the staff want to get very engaged in this conversation. And what struck me was how engaged the RIBA staff team were in wanting, you know, we, we had several hundred people on the, on that presentation. We had an all-staff meeting after that. We have, we have an all-staff catch-up every two weeks online. Um, and people were really interested in having that conversation. So I, I was really sort of emboldened by that because people wanted to know about the past and you know know the story that Neil and others was, were talking about to be you know to be more completely understand the way things have happened and to, to reinterpret that in, in the appropriate way um, and I think that's great and then and staff are really engaged in the conversation about um, the building and its redevelopment but of course Portland Place is is one asset of the RIBA We've also got the RIBA's collections of, you know, over four million items of architectural models, sketches, drawings, in a whole, you know, one of the world's largest and, and most amazing collections to dig into that and to start to retell the story as well. So that conversation is not just about this building. It's about much more within the RIBA in terms of its assets and then about the people within it as well. So uh, it was a great, again, lots of this, we talked about great start on the journey, but the building itself is, is rich, it's, you know, but it's confronting. You've got the, the Dominion Tapestry in the Jarvis Theatre, you've got the carvings in, in the Florence Hall, you know, there's some very visible, uh, tangible issues confronting everybody. So Neil's sort of guiding us through that conversation was just brilliant last year. And we're looking forward to the book being published to have more of that conversation going forward and, as Jack's uh, said, to feed all of that intelligence and, and that insight into the way in which the building is, is redeveloped over the next number of years. So certainly from your point of view, the RABA is quite happy to open up, quite happy to open up that conversation and to encourage architecture to have it. Oh, definitely. But, I mean, I'd sort of relate back to last year when, when the Black Lives Matter issue 
you know, confronted everybody very openly, the George Floyd incident. We we went through a pretty agonising time um, to understand how we should how we should approach that issue, you know, how we should make steps to sort of acknowledge the issues of the past. And, the, you know, the, there, was, there were a number of people who weren't sort of happy for us to do that and a lot of people who were and some of us, you know, I had to make a decision and I thought the right thing for us to do was to step forwards, you know, to move towards um, that story rather than to sort of ignore it and to shy away from it. And, but it wasn't, it wasn't a sort of unanimous decision, if you like. It was something that people took a long time to get to grips with and to understand, and and we moved forward. But it was really, really confronting, and I, you know, I think that's a that's a good thing to recognise. It wasn't an easy decision to make. It wasn't an easy step to take. But I'm really glad that we we've started that that journey and made those steps. Uh, speaking of which, uh, um, one of the other people we spoke to was Marvin Rees and he's the uh, city mayor of Bristol. And we spoke to him about um, inclusive design and what it means to have inclusive spaces, especially in a place like Bristol. And, and this is what he had to say. Too often the voice from the profession has been, these are the kind of buildings we like, don't build tall buildings. Well, uh, great. Well, what are you going to say then to the, the, you know, the family I meet that's got three kids in a one bed, bed sit, temporary accommodation? To have to be credible, the profession needs to join the whole conversation about the complexity of social challenges we face. When we find that common ground that we're all respecting the, the sheer range of challenges we're trying to take on in, in planning our city's futures, then we can have a really productive conversation. But I, I think so part of that can be taken on uh, by the profession becoming more diverse, having people in it who've come from backgrounds when they've lived in a refuge and know what housing insecurity is rather than just going to you know nice schools nice universities and then you know have an appreciation for fine buildings around the world and i'm not saying everyone's in there i'm being quite <laughs> i'm being quite uh blunt in my description but it can feel like that when you're on the receiving end of, of, of the lobby of you know guys in corduroy trousers and Corduroy trousers, and, and we said uh, black polo necks, actually, uh, Jack. Um, Jack, uh, what at the moment, what are the chances of those with a background of living in a refuge of getting into this profession? No black polo necks here. Uh, we, we need to lower the barriers to entry. That, that's, that's the key point. Is, is that the right? Um, is that uh, really what we need to do? Lower the barriers of entry? Is that what we need to do? I think so. I think we need to make I think we need to make our education system and our profession more accessible. And I think it starts at secondary schools. Uh, uh, and we do have a you know well-established program of going into secondary schools and the most disadvantaged ones that we can to tell people about the profession. Uh, that we then need to uh, construct a diverse set of um, ways of being educated in the profession and eventually qualified. You know the the, the current uh, uh, route qualification is is absolutely fine if you can afford that route. But you know it's actually founded at a time when there were full grants uh, to support people. I got a full grant to go to university, and I lived on it very happily. Thank you very much. Came out with zero debt. Well, of course that isn't true anymore, and so we need to have alternative pathways through our education system. The RIBA is already promoting these. Uh, with apprenticeships, apps, etc. Back in 2015, uh, I, with uh, others, uh, wrote a chapter for Harriet Harris's uh, book, Radical Pedagogies, uh, where I promoted an idea of uh, 
a, a, a simple vocational first degree followed by a four-year part-time uh, uh, learning to complete uh, your course. And Reading University took that up, I'm very pleased to, to, to say. And that gave a much lower cost route in, in, into our profession. So, yeah, that's what I mean by lowering the barriers uh, to entry, to make it more welcoming, more accessible, more doable uh, for all sorts of people, regardless of their background. Uh, and one thing that we don't have much of here, which they have in, in, in abundance in the States, is scholarships and bursaries. And, you know, I think the profession could look to, you know, putting its shoulder to, uh, to those sort of initiatives to, to help people uh, come through. You know, in the States, some of the universities are phenomenally expensive uh, to go to, but there are monstrous foundations uh, that support all sorts of people if they've got the ability to go there. So uh, we need to, to do a whole stack of different things. Uh, to enable people from all sorts of backgrounds, particularly disadvantaged, to come into our profession. Rebecca, I mean, I know that as um, in your role as Director of Policy and Communications at the ARB, we, we've already spoken a little bit about the education uh, process, but lowering barriers, is that how you would describe it? Oh, I'm a regulator, so lowering anything makes me nervous. Um, obviously, Jack didn't say lower standards. I, I can agree with um, diversifying the routes onto the register. I think that's really important. The survey that we're running at the moment so that people can help shape our approach to education asks what the barriers are. Um, and I'm trying not to look at the, the results of it because it, it's open until the 10th of January, but I can't help a sneak peek every so often. Um, it's, it's really interesting. Um, some people think that the parts one and two three structure has has too many barriers in it it's part two that people might might have a bit of an issue with it's that as i've already mentioned getting getting a placement and getting some training on the job um, and whether or not they're supported in doing that so look what we're really interested in is what are those barriers and what can we as the regulator do to remove them and how can we increase the ways that people access the profession. If you're a good architect, if you've got the skills, knowledge, experience and behaviour that you need to practice as an architect, it shouldn't matter how you got there. You, if you can demonstrate that, you should be able to join the register and design brilliant buildings for everybody. I just want to hear then from Adana Walker, uh, who runs um, Built By Us. It's a scheme to help uh, bring different people into the profession. There would be no point for us to kind of be working away in a kind of little bubble. We really need um, the sector to be very much part of this. So um, engaging with us um, through the services and support um, that we can provide, um, but also recognising the um, opportunity to be allies. So joining as um, mentors and supporters of the programmes, you know, this is the way that we're going to kind of supersize our impact and our um, effect. We've got a lot to do because we have kept this on the nice to-do list for so long. Um, however, I am truly encouraged by the sheer number of practices, the fact that we are having this conversation, um, the fact that um, professional bodies, um, um, sector leaders and organisations from, you know, 10 people right up to thousands of people are going, we can do more. You know, let's work out how we can do it. And I'm so, so pleased that Built by Us is there as one of the organisations that says yes, and this is how. So Built by Us, uh, working to uh, create partnerships between practice and those in underrepresented. Uh, are there enough partnerships, Alan, uh, with organisations like hers? 
Well, I guess there's never enough in the sense that there's more to do on everything. But, uh, we, I mean, the ROBA, we've, we've had long association with, I mean, Diana's a former council member and um, we know her very well. We've run sort of joint events with her. We did Stonewall events a few years ago. Um, we've got relationships that go back a long way with the Steve, what was the Stephen Lawrence Charitable Trust, now Blueprint for All, with Doreen's new foundation as well. We've got a range of other sort of associations and partnerships and they're, you know, they've all been really, really productive partnerships um, for us as well as for the other organisations. Um, but there's always something more you can do. I mean, it, it, it's a sort of leading question in a sense because the answer is no, nobody's done enough because here we are talking about the issue and what needs to be done. So there's more we can do. I think there is a balance to be drawn, though, with, you know, the, the multiplicity of partnership relationships. I think it's about the right balance, you know, the maximum impact for the resources you've got available. So there is some some form of priority and choice you have to make because at the end of the day, you know, our resources are ultimately limited as, as everybody's. But your personal resources, what, you know, the motivation, back to the first comments and questions, what you can personally add to that is, is unlimited in that sense. Um, Sarah, I'd like to give you the last word, if I may, about your hopes for the future of the profession. The AARB obviously talking with the RIBA all the time to try to push us forward. Uh, what hopes do you have about, you know, inclusion and uh, the architecture profession? Um, that, that, that's very kind of you. Um, I, um, I, I'd like to reference someone that I've come across um, over the last couple of years in my research. Um, uh, she's an American woman, Dr. Sharon Sutton, who was the 12th um, black woman to qualify as an architect in, in America. And uh, she was able to do that. Uh, she was a very gifted, uh, I would say, um, but she was able to do that um, by virtue of a scholarship. So back in, 19, in the 1960s, 1968, um, there were a series of protests in the US, um, not dissimilar to what happened here um, a couple of years ago, um, following, um, well, it's not a couple of years, but following um, George Floyd's murder. And um, as a result of those protests, she was given a scholarship to Columbia University and, um, and has then gone on to, uh, she's now Dr. Sharon Sutton, first full pre professor of architecture in the United States. So she's gone on to have a blistering career because she was given that opportunity and um, is arguably still inspiring future generations because of that. Um, she herself would agree with um, some of the things that have been said here about creating multiple routes into the profession, um, that maybe not one form of training fits all. Um, but ultimately, um, you know, she was given that opportunity at, um, at a young age um, to become part of a profession which she um, which she loves and continues to have a great influence in and so that is what I would like to see happen for this generation that's what I'd like to see now um, we are in a position to do that um, resources may be limited uh, but uh, you know it is partly about motivation we do have to want to do it. And I, and I think that there is kind of, you know, there has been a, a wave um, over the last year or so. 
and and I hope that we can continue. Yeah, I can, can hear your points that, that uh, what we need to do is create a profession and a future that is inspiring and can move people forward by using those motivations to really push people forward. Alan Valance, CEO of the RIBA, Jack Pringle, Chair of the Board of the RIBA, Rebecca Roberts, who is Director of Policy and Communications at the ARB, and Sarah Akibogan, Council Member for the RIBA. Thank you all for joining me on Reba Radio to open up these conversations, to delve into some of those weeds uh, and for being open to sharing some of the things that we can do together to make that commitment to quite literally change the world. You're listening to Reba Radio, real inclusive, brilliant action. For more on how we're doing equity, diversity and inclusion, and if you'd like to join the Reba, head over to architecture.com.